In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is uh, beginning to address one of the core issues that needed to be uh, talked about uh, by him to the church. And it's the issue of false teachers. And this is the danger that the people faced in Peter's day in the first century. And it's the danger, one of the great dangers that we face today. We see that danger in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. Scripture reads, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false Words, And we'll stop there. In these three verses, beginning in uh, ch- chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Peter, he's talking about false teachers that can destroy the church, that can harm the church. And a couple of questions that I want us to ask today. Number one, um, who are these false teachers? What did they teach, specifically? And why are they so dangerous? So what do these false teachers teach, and why is it so dangerous? Now, if you were to ask Peter exactly what are these false teachers teaching, and why are they so dangerous, I think Peter's answer would have been, I've already told you what they teach. And uh, you read these verses, and it doesn't make it very explicit what exactly they were teaching, but I believe Peter would have said, I, I've already mentioned this to you. And for us to figure out exactly what they're teaching, we have to do just a little bit of detective work. Now, I love doing detective work. My mom says that I would have made a great lawyer had I chosen to be a lawyer. And if not a lawyer, uh, I think I would have made a great detective. And uh, I, I love to look at a situation look at it, and sort of break it down. And one of my favorite TV shows that I mentioned before is Columbo. And Columbo's a, a great TV detective, and there was a, uh, a, a particular episode of Columbo called Murder Under Glass. And in this episode, there was a food critic who was holding hostage, if you will, certain uh, restaurant owners. And he would give them a bad review unless... They paid him a lot of money under the table. And if they paid him a lot of money under the table, he'd give them a very favorable review. And he'd get on TV and talk about how wonderful that restaurant is. And so these these guys, it was like the mafia. These guys felt like they had to turn over money to this food critic or else he had the power, the authority, to destroy their restaurant. Well, finally, there was this one restaurant owner who was uh, Italian, had a, had a big uh, explosive personality, and he, he said, that's enough. I'm not going to pay you anymore. In fact, I'm going to expose you for the fraud that you are. Well, if the word got out, it would certainly destroy the food critic's career. And he wasn't going to allow that. And so uh, he poisoned the restaurant owner in a very ingenious way. He he. Poison, put the poison in a wine bottle that the restaurant owner did not open until after 
the man had gone away from dinner. And so they had dinner together, and they had this, uh, this argument and this discussion, and the poison was put in, and the food critic went away, and later in the evening, the restaurant owner opened the wine bottle, had his wine, and was poisoned and died. Well, the food critic eventually heard about this not too long afterwards. Of course, he planned the whole thing, but he heard about it. And as soon as he heard about it, he rushed back to the restaurant where he met Columbo, the detective. And Columbo knew right then who the murderer was because of one little thing that stood out, one little clue. If they had dinner together and one of them suffered food poisoning and died, wouldn't the other one go straight to the hospital and get checked out? And because of that one little clue that stood out, it, un it began to unravel the entire story. And that's what you do when you're a detective. You find a clue, find something that stands out, and you work backward. And that's what we're going to do today. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, the very first thing Peter says is something that should cause us to question what he's talking about. He said, But false prophets also arose among the people. What false prophets? What people? And why is arose in the past tense? He's talking about something that happened in the past because we know that because of the past tense of arose. Something that happened way back when. So way back when, long time ago, Peter says, there were some false prophets that arose among the people. Way back when, well, what false prophets and what people? We have to go back in Scripture just a few verses to begin to unravel this clue. Go back to verse 19 of chapter 1. Peter says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure. There's that word prophet again, the prophetic word made more sure. What prophetic word is he talking about? He says, To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter's saying that way back when, long time ago, there was a prophecy or some prophecies that happened. And these prophecies happened because men were moved by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a, a, a thing that anyone dreamed up. It was something that God himself was involved in. And he said, we have this prophetic word made more sure. And so we begin to understand that Peter is saying way back when, long time ago, some prophets prophesied about something. And he said, now this is made even more sure. And whatever this prophecy was, it was given to the people because the Holy Spirit moved in men's hearts. 
So if we want to find out the specific prophecy, we have to move back just a little bit further. Go back to verse 16. Peter tells the church, you know, when we came to you and we preached the gospel to you and we told you about Jesus, he says in verse 16, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we told you about Jesus, who he was, and what he did, we weren't making this up. This wasn't a fig fig figment of our imagination. We weren't just telling stories. We weren't just passing the offering plate, hoping to make lots of money and move on to the next town. No, we didn't, we didn't just make up this story. We weren't following cleverly devised tales. When we told you about Jesus and his power as the Son of God, we told you about his coming as the Son of God, we weren't making this up. He says, but we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses to what? To his majesty. What's he talking about? Verse 17. He says, For when he, when Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He says in verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying that there was a prophecy made long, long time ago by those prophets way back when. And in this prophecy, they prophesied that there would be the Messiah. The Messiah would come, and the Messiah would be the one with whom God would be well pleased. What prophecy is he talking about? You see, it's not just that Peter saying, you know, when Jesus was up on that mountain of transfiguration, he was transfigured and we saw it and we heard the voice from heaven. Peter says, it's not just that we heard this, but this act was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you know the Hebrew Scriptures, you know that he's talking about in Isaiah chapter 42. Take your Bible, turn back to Isaiah chapter 42. This is written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came to this earth, before he was ever transfigured in front of the very eyes of Peter and two others. In Isaiah chapter 42, Scripture reads this way, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. This is God speaking. He says, Behold my servant. Look at my servant. Look at Jesus. He is the one that I uphold. He is the chosen one. He is the one in whom my soul delights. God said that back in Isaiah's day. Hundreds of years before Christ came. And this was a prophecy 
that was fulfilled on the day that Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter and James and John, and he was transfigured. And that transfiguration not only was a display of God's glory in Jesus, but it was also a fulfillment of those prophecies that happened way back when. In Psalm 2, Scripture reads this way, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those are all who take refuge in him. Peter saying. There was a prophecy way back when in Isaiah 42 that there is one who is chosen. There is one with whom God is well pleased. There was a prophecy back in Psalm 2 about the Son of God, the one who is to come, the one that was chosen by God to be the Savior of the world. Peter says these prophecies that happened way back when, these prophecies are about the Son of God. And these prophecies came true before my very eyes when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. Now let's go back to 2 Peter. Peter says these prophecies that I saw fulfilled before my very eyes they are made even more sure for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God and Peter says even way back then there were false prophets who also arose among the people not only were there true prophets in Isaiah 42 true prophets in Psalm 2 But all throughout human history, God's people have had to put up with false prophets who tried to mislead them. False prophets who gave false false prophecies. And when God said, you will succeed, the false prophet said, no, you will fail. When God said, you will fail, the false prophet said, no, go forward because you will succeed. And they misled the people of God. And if the people of God listened to the false prophets, they put themselves in dire straits. They put themselves in danger. Peter says in the first part of Verse 1 in chapter 2 of Second Peter. Way back when, there were false prophets too that arose among the people. He says, I've already told you about the true prophecy. The prophecy that I saw unfolded before my very eyes, that prophecy that was written down in Psalm 2, the prophecy that was written down in Isaiah 42, I showed you the true prophecy. But you've got to beware, church, because... 
Way back when, there were false prophets. He says, what about today? Peter says, in verse, two, verse 1, Just as there will also be false teachers among you. Peter says, It should be no surprise that there will be false teachers among you. There have always been false prophets. And now you have a false teacher. And there will be false teachers that come into the church, and you won't know them. They'll look like you. They'll talk like you. But they introduce destructive heresies. Heresies about what? Why are they so dangerous? The heresies, the false teachings, at one point or another will always be about Jesus Christ. The heresies will eventually, they might start out as a heresy about one thing or another. They might sound good. There might be a, a half-truth here, a half-truth there. But eventually, when they get to talking about Jesus, these false teachers will eventually try to mislead you as to who Jesus is. Because what does all Scripture point to? It points to Jesus. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament, they ultimately have an impact on our understanding of the Savior of the world, the Savior that we need. And if Satan can mislead us about the Savior that we need, he's won the battle. And so he sends false teachers into the church to confuse the church, to make the church ineffective, to make the church weak. Peter knew this. He said, just as there will also be false teachers among you, and what will they do? He will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That's Jesus. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. There are people today that, uh, there are false teachers today that are able to get into the church in various ways, in various means. And it's not always that they would come into the physical building of the church, the, although that's, that's true. They could come into the gathering of the church. But today, the message, the spiritual message, whether it's good and true or whether it's bad and evil, the message can come in through various means, even through media. Recently, uh, there was a, a movie that came out uh, called The Shack made some news and uh, the shack is uh, an interesting allegory of God visiting uh, someone who's going through a hard time who's wondering the question why does God who's good allow evil in the world and that's a that's a fair question it's a question that uh, we all wrestle with in some form or fashion it's a question that scripture addresses quite adequately but in this movie, and there was a book, of course, that it was based upon, uh, so many Christians became concerned that some of the teachings were quite unbiblical. Even though it's an allegory, even though it's fictional, uh, there, there were some questions as to whether uh, the spiritual truths and the doctrines espoused in this particular film were actually Christian or not. Well, more recently, the author of the book wrote another book, and it's called Lies We Believe About God. The author of the book, of The Shack, and this other book is a guy by the name of Paul Young. And he's finally made it more clear exactly what he believes. 
in this new book, Lies We Believe About God. And it's good that he made it clear because it gives us an understanding as to the doctrine and theology behind a very popular movie. Some of the things that he claims are lies are these statements. God is good and I am not. He says that's a lie. He says this is a lie. God is in control. He says this is a lie. God wants to use me. He says this is a lie. You need to get saved. He says this is a lie. Hell is separation from God. He says this is a lie. The cross was God's idea. He says this is a lie. Um, sin separates us from God. These things are core teachings of Scripture. And yet, what he's done in a very, I'd say, insidious way, is he's taken the person of Jesus Christ and the person of God the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit, and he has infused in his own imagination these persons with these false doctrines. And he's presented in such a way that seems emotionally appealing. But behind it all is false doctrine that can damage the church. Now, I'm not one to overstate the importance of a movie. It's a movie. Um, however, I am one to call to attention the false doctrines that we encounter. And these kinds of things are false doctrines. What Peter would say to us is that at some point, when there's a false teacher, he eventually gets around, if he doesn't do it at the very beginning, to talking about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. And false teachings will always malign or somehow misunderstand who Jesus is and or they will misunderstand or malign what Jesus did on the cross. They'll either say, and sometimes they'll say both, that Jesus is not the eternal and unique Son of God. Or they will say what Jesus did on the cross when He died on the cross was somehow unnecessary that God accepts all of us regardless of whether someone believes in this Jesus who died on the cross. And that's just simply not true. God does love us. Make no mistake about that. But what Jesus did on the cross cannot be discounted. It cannot be diminished. Because without the cross, there is no salvation. Without that terrible, bloody, horrible experience that Jesus went through on the cross, then our sins and our failures are not covered and not forgiven. Peter says in verse 2 again, they even deny the master that bought them. They bring swift destruction upon themselves. Unfortunately, in verse 2, he says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And that's the tragedy of false teachers. There's, the, the things that they say 
are so appealing. It sounds good. We, there's something within us that we, we sort of want that to be true. I mean, there's something about being told that you're really not that bad that Jesus had to die on the cross. You can't be that bad, can you? I mean, you're not a Hitler. You're not a Stalin. You're not that bad. Maybe Jesus only died for the really bad people. But that can't be you, can it? And so there's something about that idea that it seems appealing. But Scripture says that you are that bad. That you do need a Savior to die on the cross for you. And He did. But many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with many words. One of the markings of a false teacher is how greedy they are. Now, Christians, good, solid, whatever kind of Christian you want to call them, they can, they can be tempted by greed as well. Greed is something, the love of money is something that we all have to guard against. But greed can be, uh, and will be, for a false teacher, a driving force of his life. It's never enough. Always promising that God will bless you if you, of course, will give money to him, uh, to the false teacher. Incredible amount of greed and sensuality. And many times they'll appeal to the greed and that we all have to deal with in our hearts in order for you to give them more money. They'll exploit you with false words. And then he gives us an understanding of what awaits them. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter would have us know that false teachers will be judged by God, will be judged very harshly by God. And by extension, we have to understand that if we follow them, if we follow false teachers, we're following them into judgment. And so we need to know what it is we believe. We need to know whom it is that we believe in and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Above all else, be wary of what you receive into your heart. Hopefully you're wise enough and strong enough as a Christian to be able to identify the false teachings that come across in our society and come into uh, your own perception but if you have questions about a teaching this is where scripture would instruct you to ask your pastor ask those that are good bible teachers that perhaps perhaps they may know something that uh, you have not yet learned and they can guide you in the right way and keep you from judgment